Good morning to everyone. August 12th, 2018. Stands out in your mind, doesn't it? At least the members of Grace Community Church. It was the Sunday we began this sermon series in 1 Corinthians. Don't worry, I had to look it up as well. I had no idea. It was August 12th, 2018, that we embarked on this sermon series. And today we are going to bring it to a close by considering together 1 Corinthians chapter 16. It's a lengthy chapter. There is a fair bit in the chapter. You know, as we glance at it, we could consider, if we had time, we could consider uh, what Paul has to say about giving generously to assist the poor. Look at the first four verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of each week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Clearly, we are to give regularly. Look at the start of verse 2 on the first day of the week. We are to give proportionately, the middle of the verse, as each may prosper. And we are to give purposefully. In this case, there has been a famine in Jerusalem. So Paul is gathering this collection from the churches of Asia to take to the aid of the saints in Jerusalem to assist the poor. And so if we had time, we could spend, I don't know, a sermon anyway, considering what Paul says about giving generously to assist the poor. If we had time, we could consider what Paul says about planning strategically to advance the kingdom. Verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now, just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. And so we see in these verses something of the need to make tentative plans. Look at that statement at the end of verse 7. If the Lord permits, if the Lord wills, we see something of the need to seek open doors 
Look at what Paul says in verse 9, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And we see something of the need to help our fellow workers. Back in verse 6, I want you to help me on my journey. Down to verse 11, help him, that is Timothy, on his way. And so if we had time, we could, yes, perhaps a sermon uh, devoted to these verses and what Paul has to say about planning strategically to advance the kingdom. Or thirdly, if time permitted, we could look at what Paul says about serving faithfully to edify the church. Verse 15, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. And so here we see something about the nature of service. It involves devoting ourselves. It is a devotion of the heart of the life. We see that in verse 15. And we see something quite clearly concerning the goal of our service. It is to be a cause of refreshment. And so, yes, we could spend time considering what Paul says about serving faithfully to edify the church. We aren't going to do any of those things. What we are going to do is focus on what Paul says in verses 13 and 14. Because in these two verses, he gives us five commands that sum up the central message of the book. Be watchful. You guessed it. That's command number one. Stand firm in the faith. That's two. Act like men. That's three. Be strong. That's four. And the fifth into verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. Five commands that really capture. There's a lot going on in this book. But five commands that capture the book's main message. Now, just before we get to each of these commands in order, let me preface it all with a few words from a hymn. I think most of us know this hymn. We sing it here occasionally. And I was flipping through the hymn book this past week, and there it was. And a couple of the stanzas really grabbed my attention. Here it is. My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me and paid the price for all my sin at Calvary. His grace has planned it all. Tis mine but to believe and recognize his work of love, and Christ receive. There you have a tremendous celebration of the simplicity of the gospel. That the Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross gave himself, offered himself up to make atonement for my sins, bearing the curse, bearing in his body on the cross the judgment of God. Grace, oh, grace from beginning to end, superabounding grace. 
that on the basis of that finished work, uh, the, the fact that it is finished, testified to by his resurrection and ascension, that on the basis of that work, God offers to me, offers to all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins. It is from grace to grace, and it is grace in between. The glories of the gospel, the simplicity of the author of the gospel, and this tremendous truth that it all rests upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I stand here before you this morning, and most of you can join with me in this sentiment. We celebrate the fact that the Lord Jesus is our Savior. He is our Savior. But, but, He is also our Sovereign. He has saved us to transform us. He has imparted saving grace and accompanying it, he has given what? Sanctifying grace by which he changes us. And so these five commands, they're imperatives and they're going to come at us this morning. We need to understand them and keep them in view in the light of the cross, in the light of God's grace. This is not legalism. This is our Savior who is our sovereign now commanding us and telling us how he wants us to behave. And so we're going to work through these five commands. I'm going to explain each one very briefly, simply. I'm then going to explain how it applies to the church at Corinth in their context. And then we're going to leap over 2,000 years and come back to Glen Rose, Texas, Grace Community Church, and see how each of these commands, each is relevant for us today. So here's the first. Verse 13, be watchful. What does it mean to be watchful? It means to be awake, for starters. It means to be alert. It means to be aware of one's surroundings so that one is aware of potential dangers. The mariner watches for rocks and reefs. The hiker, at least in these parts, watches for snakes. The pilot watches for storms. The soldier watches for enemies. Watchfulness, watchfulness, watchfulness. Why? Because carelessness is costly. I'm sure I've shared this with you before. My roofing days, ring a bell to anybody? Oh, I have. Oh. Well, here we go anyway. There's some visitors here this morning. This is for you. My roofing days. I was a roofer way back in the day, 30 years ago. And our boss, we were just a crew of two on this particular day, and our boss dropped us off at this house. So there you go, guys. Have at it. Rip off all those old shingles. But um, you see that part sagging up there? Don't go anywhere near it. It's rotten. It's rotten. Half an hour later, I'd fallen through the roof. Why? Carelessness. A lack of? watchfulness. And so this is the admonition. This is the command. Be watchful. Stay awake, please. Stay alert. And it is extremely relevant to the church at Corinth. Why? Because they've fallen asleep at the wheel. This is a church in disarray. This is a church that has lost sight of its surroundings. This is a church that seems to be blind to the dangers pressing in and surrounding them. 
And we go back to chapter 8 and we discover that some of them have fallen into idolatry. Can you be any more careless than that? Go all the way back to chapter 5 and we learn that some of them have fallen into immorality. How did that happen? Read the book in its entirety and we see that just about all of them have fallen prey to self-love. They just live in this world of self, self-pursuit, self-exaltation, self-fulfillment. The church is in disarray and it is actually tearing the church apart. And it all goes back to a, the disobedience toward this command, be watchful. This is a church that has fallen asleep and a church that now seems to be unaware of the dangers all around it and even within it. This speaks to Grace Community Church. 2,000 years later, here we are, our situation quite different from the church at Corinth, but the need for watchfulness as real today as in the day Paul penned these words. The devil is on the prowl. The world is at the door, folks, and the flesh is actively opposing the spirit. Yes, these are three perils, the devil, the world, the flesh. But here is what I pray. I pray we understand this with, with such clarity and take it to heart. The success of these three enemies, the devil, the world, and the flesh, each relies on one factor, and it is this, the condition of the heart. To watch for the devil is to watch your own heart. To watch for the world is to watch your heart. And to watch for the dangers that the flesh brings is to watch the heart. It is to heed Solomon's commandment. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flows the springs of life. Keep watch. Keep vigilance over your heart. Here's a probing question. Is there something closer than God to your heart? Just take a moment. I mean, seriously. Is there something closer than God to your heart? It might be something you delight in. A little too much. Could be your reputation. Could be your success. Could be your position. It could be pleasure. But look, you know it. When it's all said and done, your heart's delight is in this thing. And that thing, entity, whatever it is, is much closer to your heart and holds far greater sway than God does. You know what happens when something challenges what we delight in? Something that we delight in more than God? When something challenges it or something disrupts it or something denies it or something takes us away from it, what happens? We become enraged. Is there a delight that is closer to your heart than God? You know, it might not be something we delight in. It might actually be something we hope in. Our marriage. I don't know. We've made it our supreme hope. Our spouse. My spouse is going to make me happy. This marriage is going to bring me fulfillment and meaning. It could be wealth. 
possessions, prosperity, health, a number of things. What happens when these things are removed? What happens when these things in which we hope it's all disrupted or taken away from us? We become despondent. It could be something we delight in. It could be something we hope in. It could be something we trust in. It could be our ability. Again, it could be our health. It could be our appearance. Any number of things. And when something touches, when this is challenged, that which we trust in, because it is closer to our heart than God, when it is removed from us, disrupted, we become embittered. And when we become enraged, when we become despondent, or when we become embittered, we are only one step away from becoming highly toxic. That's it. I have been in pastoral ministry now in one size, shape, or form for 25 years. I've seen a thing or two, 25 years. And I have engaged with, I don't know how many, countless other pastors, missionaries. And I have sat in the classroom with prospective pastors and those who have been years in the ministry. And I have heard it time and time and time again. What is the greatest challenge to a church? It isn't doctrinal infidelity. It can be a problem. It certainly can. Those who deny the truth, it can be a problem, but uh, it not, has not, in my experience, been the greatest challenge or the greatest threat. It can be moral laxity. It's a horrendous problem to have to deal with and confront. But again, it doesn't pose the greatest threat to the church. What poses the greatest threat to a local church and what poses the greatest threat to Grace Community Church uh, is this. It is the poison that flows from the enraged heart, the despondent heart, or the embittered heart. It is the individual who has not kept watch over his heart. It is the woman who has not kept watch, vigilance, over her heart, and there is something closer to the heart than God. It can be a thousand and one different things, folks, but there is something that holds sway in the heart, something we hold dear, something that is precious to of, of inestimable worth and far greater worth than God. What happens when something challenges it? What happens when it is taken away? What happens when others refuse to acknowledge it? You are left with an enraged individual. You are left with a despondent individual. And you are left with an embittered individual. And these pose the greatest threat to a local church's unity and stability. So let me say to you, friend, don't let it be you. Don't let it be you. I've seen it countless times. Stood by a helpless step to do anything. Don't let it be you. Keep vigilance over your heart and ensure that God reigns supreme and that the Lord Jesus Christ alone is of inestimable worth and that all else pales in comparison. If not, you are but one step away from becoming highly toxic. Be watchful. Be watchful. Here's the second command. 
Stand firm in the faith. It's right there in verse 13. What does that mean? Shama. That's what that means. You should be staring at me right about now saying, what, is, what, what does he mean by that? Come on. 2 Samuel 23. David's list of mighty men. Penny starting to drop for some. Shama, who was he? The Philistines were invading. And Shama, what does he do? There's a plot of lentils, vegetables, Brussels sprouts. Not, no, I hate Brussels sprouts, not Brussels sprouts. They smell like old sneakers or something like that. Not Brussels sprouts, any other vegetable, but Brussels sprouts. There's this field of lentils. And what does Shama do? He stands in the middle of the field of lentils. Why? Because he knows the Philistines have come to burn it. And he knows here's the, the uh, food source for the people of Israel. And there he takes his stand and wards off these invading armies, the Philistines. That's what it means to take a stand. It means to plant both feet and say, here it is. I'm standing here. I'm not moving. I am not budging. I might get knocked over. I might get plowed out of the way, but come what may, I'm going to stand here and not move. And this is Paul's command to the church at Corinth, stand firm in the faith. By that, he might very well mean stand firm in what you believe. He's alluded to that. Just turn back for a moment to chapter 15. Because there he writes in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you received in which you stand. This is where you've planted your feet. And so he may very well be referring to the content of the gospel, the content of the faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He may be commanding them, look, here is what we believe and you must stand upon it. Or he may be referring to the fact that they need to stand in terms of how they behave. And I say that because in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, stand firm in the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, stand fast in the Lord. And so which is it? I think we can take both. That is, he now issues this second command, stand firm in the faith. He is telling them, look, you need to plant both feet, and here's where you need to plant it in terms of what you believe and how you behave. That's extremely relevant for us at Grace Community Church. That is a command that ought to resonate with us. Will you stand firm in the faith? Firstly, will you stand firm in terms of what you believe? I mean, this church was founded with a, with a, with a fairly simple yet profound in many ways sort of conviction. And the conviction was this. Look, we'll, we'll put together a statement of faith. And this statement of faith will consist of what we perceive to be absolutes, essentials. And we will confess these truths. We will affirm these truths. But also of great importance is the fact that these truths, our confession of faith, is understood through a lens, a historical lens. Looking back firstly to the Reformation 
And while we don't officially affirm any of the confessions that came out of the Reformation, we certainly receive them and read them and study them and make sure we're standing in that stream going back to the Reformation. And then we look back even further to the early creeds of the church, and in particular what those creeds had to say concerning the triune God, what they affirmed concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a church, this is how we've defined ourselves. This is our theological identity. And these are the things that we've said, look, this, this is the stream in which we need to stand. And if we stay in this stream, and there's a little bit of room for liberty around the edges, but if we stay in this stream, all will be well. If we depart from this stream, well, who knows what the consequences and the results will be. Oh, it's an admonition to Grace Community Church. Stand firm in the faith, stand firm in what you believe, but it is also an admonition to stand firm in how we live, in how we live, because a creed without conduct is what? It's downright ugly. That's what it is. A faith without practice is what? It's ugly too. Oh, to have mere intellectual knowledge, to merely confess the truth, but not live it out, which was the case to a large extent, in the church of Corinth, wasn't it? They had the truth, but they were not putting it in practice. And each seemed to be doing what was right in his own eyes. And here Paul reminds them, no, here's the truth. Here's the faith. You need to plant both feet in terms of what we believe, the content of our faith. But equally important, stand firm in the Lord and make sure how you live is consistent with and reflects that truth. Oh, we must labor struggle, and this will be a perpetual fight to ensure that we give no room to a truncated gospel. What do I mean to a truncated gospel? I mean the idea that there is such a thing as a Christ who saves but does not transform. There's no such thing, my friend. He saves in order to transform. Cheap grace is the plague of the American church. It has been now for decades, and it will continue to plague the American church. Cheap grace. This idea that I can say a prayer, I have said a prayer. This idea that uh, the Lord Jesus, as I saw in one t-shirt recently, can be my jam. Still not even sure what that means, but that's what the t-shirt said. This idea that I could be one with Jesus and sort of talk about Jesus and have said some sort of prayer of, uh, I don't know, expression of faith in Jesus and yet uh, live without any regard to the lordship of that Jesus in my life is not the gospel, my friends. It is a truncated gospel. It is a false gospel gospel. Well, let me go back to that hymn just for a moment. I wasn't intending to, but let me go back to that hymn for just a moment. My hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me. Amen. And paid the price for all my sin at Calvary. Amen. His grace has planned it all. Tis mine but to believe and recognize his work of love and Christ receive. Amen, 
Amen. And I say again, amen. Faith alone, faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Faith is the instrument. It is the only instrument. It stands by itself. It is the unique, absolute means by which we become one with the Lord Jesus. Faith is the instrument by which we lay hold of Christ. It is faith alone. It is faith alone. It is faith alone. Are we clear on that? Only part of the message. When we speak of the instrument by which we are saved, it is faith alone. When we speak of the instrument of salvation, it is faith alone. But when we speak of the way of salvation, faith is never, ever alone. We entered through a narrow gate to walk on a broad way. We most certainly did not. We entered through a narrow gate to walk on a very narrow, precise, exacting, demanding way. A way that is marked by repentance, heartfelt repentance of sin, a turning from it and forsaking of it. It is a way marked by obedience, even when we don't like it. It is a way marked by taking up our cross daily, denying ourselves and following the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a way Christ himself promised it that will be marked by trial and tribulation and difficulty, things we cannot even imagine. None of it has any merit because we stand on Christ alone and we are made one with Christ our Savior through faith alone. But moving past the instrument by which we become one with him, and we now look at the way home, the way that he himself has appointed. We see that it is marked by good works. It is characterized by obedience. It is characterized by repentance. And this, I will say it, repugnant idea that I can simply say a prayer, believe in Jesus, and live as I jolly well please has got to be one of the greatest lies plaguing the church today. Oh, what I have said is so open to being misconstrued. It is open to being abused, but we need to plant both feet here, my friends. Both feet and stand firm. And let me repeat it again. How are we saved? How do I become a Christian? By faith alone, in Christ alone. God offers the Lord Jesus to me. If you're not a Christian, he offers the Lord Jesus to you right now. And all you have to do is receive him. All you have to do is believe. Yeah, I am a sinner. I acknowledge that. And I, I, I know I can't save myself. And I receive the Lord Jesus as my savior. Faith alone, the instrument by which we take hold of him. But now we have embarked on a way. And that way, again, will be marked by repentance. It will be marked by change. It will be marked by transformation. It will be marked by mortification. It will be marked by struggle. And let me just speak to perhaps that one individual. You're sitting there right now and you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, that kind of sounds like me. It sounds like you. What that means, my friend, is this. You're not a Christian. 
No such thing as a carnal Christian. That's something the church has created to make people feel better about themselves and just sort of give them the security that they can live however they please and God will sneak them in the back door in heaven someday. No, 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 no. You must believe in the Lord Jesus. You must become with, one with him through faith and faith alone. But having become one with him, guess what? You come alive. You're born again. And having been born again, this isn't perfection, nothing like it. We don't preach perfectionism. No, no, no. You're going to be struggling with your sin till the day the Lord calls you home. But that's just it. You embark on a struggle. A struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And you strive to obey. You strive to discern the Lord's will. You strive to please him above all else. Oh, stand firm in the faith. Yes, the content of what we believe and how we live. The third command is this, act like men. Am I allowed to say that today? Obviously, Paul thinks masculinity is something good, right? Inherently good, noble, worthy. Act like men, including the women. Act like men. Well, what is it about manhood? What's he referring to? It could be his very next commandment, be strong. And so the fourth commandment might actually be a further elaboration of the third commandment. That's entirely possible. He could be speaking simply of these ideas of bravery and chivalry. He could be speaking of the Bible's testimony to the man's responsibility to provide and protect. I think far eclipsing these, as we read scriptures from cover to cover, we discover this one distinguishing mark of manhood, masculinity, and it is this. God has called the man to give himself. That's what he's done. He's called the man to give himself. Corinthian church isn't doing that. They've succumbed to a culture committed to the exaltation of self. They're concerned, consumed with power and influence. And it has led to widespread confusion and division. And yet it is a command still relevant for us at Grace Community Church. Act like men. Brothers and sisters, will you act like a man? Like a man. We need to embrace God's calling to give ourselves for others. What might this mean as a local church? I might need to give more of my time for the sake of this church. I might need to give preference to someone else for the good of this church. I might need to let go of my hobby horses for the good of this church. I might need to forgive and forget for the good of this church. I might need to be willing to serve for the good of this church. I might need to increase my financial giving. I might need to assume a responsibility that pushes me outside of my comfort zone. I might need to stop being so negative and critical. I might need to overlook offenses. I might need to be willing to go down with the ship. I might need to be willing to take the fall for the good of this church. Act like Men, man up, says the Apostle Paul. 
and recognize your calling to give yourself for others. The fourth command, be strong. To be strong, obviously, is to be able to bear a heavy load. When I think of strength, I do not think of the football player. I do not think of the weightlifter. I think of that Angolan woman living outside of the city of Lubongo and watching those women daily walk two, three miles from home to the well, community well, with her two, three-gallon basin or bucket or whatever on her head, go to that well, fill it up, place that basin on her head with a baby strapped to her back and perhaps another couple of containers, one in each hand of water, and then walk the three miles home. To see her do that at times twice daily, to see her do that certainly every day of the week, that is strength, because it's not merely physical strength. That's a mental strength. That's a volitional strength. That's a habitual strength. It speaks character. So Paul admonishes them, be strong. Oh, the church at Corinth needed to hear that. They're buckling under the weight of the surrounding society. And in so doing, they're compromising morally. Some of them are carrying on like animals, aren't they? Religiously, some of them are carrying on like pagans. Relationally, some of them are carrying on like tyrants. And they are absorbing all this from the society around them. The pressure to conform is weighing them down. And the command echoes through the centuries down to the present. And Paul, if he were alive today, would admonish us, GCC, be strong. Will you be strong? Will you, will I, be able to endure the change that is coming. It's coming, folks, and it's coming fast and furious, and the president is not going to stop it. Please do not have any misplaced hope there. The change is coming. Will we be strong? Will we endure? Will we bear up under the load? Our society has abandoned reason, and virtue in preference for relativism. Our society has abandoned the higher ideals of truth, justice, and goodness in his bewildering pursuit of personal rights and freedoms. Oh, be strong. God is unperturbed by the chaos. Completely unperturbed. He never frets. He never panics. He never, he never worries. As one of the old commentators put it, wild confusion may reign around us, yet the hearts of the righteous rejoice because God is not and cannot be dethroned. Oh, be strong. And here's the fifth command, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. I think that's the epistle's main point, isn't it? The peak was chapter 13, right? That great celebration and description of love. It all hinges on what Paul says back in the eighth chapter. If anyone loves God, he is known of God. 
And so if we love God, that means we're known of him. Well, how is our love for God shown? How, how, how is it manifested? It is manifested by loving his people. Well, at least another obvious question, how is our love for God's people manifested? I understand, okay, my love for God is manifested in love for his people. Well, how is my love for his people then shown forth? It is shown forth by this willingness to sacrifice all for the good of the church to edify others. The church at Corinth had lost sight of this. They had placed themselves at the center of their own story, the center of the narrative. They think the mark of Christian identity is their association with popular leaders or the exercise of spectacular spiritual gifts or the practice of asceticism or their tolerance of blatant sin or their participation in pagan feasts and on, on and on it goes down the list. But in actual fact, the great mark of Christian identity is love and is love alone. Love for God manifested in love for God's people, love for God's people manifested in a desire to build them up. Oh, this word is applicable to Grace Community Church. Will all that you do be done in love? It's a great question. Paul writes in Romans 15, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build them up. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build them up. Am I acting from selfishness or selflessness? Is my concern to get what I want or to build up the body? In short, very probing question, why am I here? Why am I a part of this church? And what is it I am seeking to do by God's grace? So the Lord Jesus himself is our example. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that the Lord Jesus died for us when we were weak and ungodly. He also tells us there in that same chapter that he died for us when we were sinners and enemies. He lived in love. He served with love. And he died for love. It was love that walked in our flesh. The personification of love. The embodiment of love. The Lord Jesus himself. It was love that was rejected, belittled, and scorn. It was love that was in a bloody agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was love that was pierced with thorns and nails. It was love that bore the curse. It was love that left a glorious crown to climb a shameful cross. Oh, back where we began to the stanza from that hymn, my hope is in the Lord who gave himself for me. And paid the price for all my sin at Calvary. His grace has planned it all to his mind but to believe. And recognize his work of love. And Christ receives. He is my Savior. And he is my Sovereign. Therefore, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. Our Heavenly Father, we pray right now in your presence by the Holy Spirit and in the name of the Lord Jesus that you would 
impress these commands upon our hearts collectively and individually. We pray that we would be humbled by them and we would be strengthened by means of the Spirit to obey them. We do pray for your sanctifying and sustaining grace to be operative in us. And we do intercede on behalf of any unbeliever gathered here this day. We pray, our Father, that this might be a day of reckoning. We pray that this might be a day of salvation. When they come to know the Lord Jesus, your glory as revealed in him and so wondrously revealed upon Calvary's cross and see that in him there is indeed forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. We ask it for your glory, and in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.